0: open your Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 11 as we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew a gospel that as we've seen in past many weeks months almost two years now as we've been studying it together proclaims what we've sung about this morning the coming of a king this king who will reign over all the promised one who makes right all that is wrong in the world that came into the world because of sin in the garden all the way back to Genesis 3. Well, social media has apparently figured out I'm a preacher. I am inundated with advertisements and recommendations for how to craft sermons that will draw larger numbers or how to grow a church to several hundred in just a couple of months. Clearly I have not clicked that link. The reality is though that we have no interest in building a church and crafting a message that appeals to the itching ears of this generation. We're not opposed to more persons and growing ministry and numbers, but we are fundamentally opposed to trying to keep up with this fickle generation. Or appeal to the ever-changing desires and appetites of the world, whether it be sensuality, entertainment, or political power structures. And this morning in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, it reminds us of the capricious nature of Jesus's generation. And it provides us a sobering reminder of the judgment that awaits all who have not responded in repentance to the message of salvation that Jesus offers. And this reminder, this morning as we look at it, it acts as an anchor to help guide our ministry and our thought, our preaching and our witness of the Gospel and the hope of salvation as we seek within our generation to present it to them, to a people who so desperately need the light of the gospel. So read along with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. Jesus speaking says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. And they say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend to tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Let's pray. Others we open up your word this morning. We're struck by the soberness of this message. Father, to a fickle generation so long ago, you appeared to one who rejected you. Father, the judgment that awaits them is severe indeed. Father, our desire certainly first and foremost is to ensure that we do not in any way imitate that capricious nature. But Father, as your children, as those who have placed our faith in your Son, Father, let us feel the weight of pending judgment for those who do not know you this morning, that it would motivate us to preach the gospel, to care for the lost, to long to see your kingdom grow. In your name, amen. On the heels of Jesus' call that we looked at last week, for the one who has ears to let him hear, he has identified now the spiritual state and appetite of the generation to whom he has been preaching and teaching. The generation to whom he is sending his apostles, his emissaries, as we looked at the beginning of the chapter. A generation of people who act arrogantly and confidently despite their spiritual impoverishment. As people who refuse to Repent. And if we pay careful attention this morning, we're going to observe many similarities to our current generation, both in character, response, and in need. Additionally, we continue to see the intertwined (coughs) ministries of Jesus and John as both of their ministries received a similar rejection, a similar assessment by their contemporaries despite outward differences in their approach. As Jesus opens this section beginning in verse 16, we encounter the first usage within the Gospel of Matthew to this generation. This phrase will prove to be a relatively common expression that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record Jesus saying at various times. The statement, this generation within the Gospels always refers to Jesus' contemporary time and generation. He's talking to those around him, his immediate culture, and the persons to whom he has been ministering. However, this term is also something of an ominous arbinger, always introducing pronouncements of judgment against unbelief. Jesus' opening words ask the rhetorical question, to what will I compare this generation? Here this rhetorical question orients his listeners to the fact that he's about to teach through analogy and figurative language. Additionally, it identifies the object of judgment that is to come, his contemporary Israelites throughout Galilee to whom he has been ministering. Now as we look at this illustration, as we look at this analogy, we have here in what Jesus provides of this generation, two groups of children playing in the marketplace. There is one group that is sitting there calling to another group to join them, to play a part in their game. Now, there have been various suggestions as to the identity of each group of children, but considering what follows, particularly the indictment that we've already read against the current generation and comparing them to arrogant and capricious Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, it's it's really best to view and see, and I think it's most logical, those calling out here as the spoiled, dissatisfied children of this generation. And so you have these, these we might call spoiled children, calling out to another group of children, complaining about them, complaining to them because they won't act the way they, that is, the spoiled children, want them to act. They won't play the game they want them to play and do what they want them to do. Jesus presents a somewhat humorous situation where children are selfishly upset because the other children won't play their game. Not that that ever happens in real life if you have children. The irony is that these children have actually called for completely contradictory games, completely contradictory actions, and no matter what, they are not happy. They are not satisfied. On the one hand, they're upset because the other children won't dance for them. On the other hand, they're upset because they won't play their funeral games and mourn. No matter what the other children do, this first group of children is going to fuss and complain. They cannot be satisfied. These two groups of children are analogous to real persons. And we already know the identity of the first. It's Jesus' generation, his contemporaries, those in Galilee to whom he has been ministering. So who is the other group? Who are these other children to whom they're calling out? About whom the children of this generation whine and complain? Well, the answer is Jesus and John. And this becomes readily apparent from the next verse. They're complaining about the complementary ministries of John and Jesus. We've looked in the past couple of weeks as their ministries have been intertwined with one another. But the first complaint of this generation, it's a reference to John and his asceticism, being too harsh. He's too serious. I mean, where's camel skin? He lives in the desert. He eats only locusts and wild honey. He won't laugh. He won't play. He won't join in our frivolities. He makes us feel bad. But then when it comes to Jesus, he isn't serious enough. He comes eating and drinking. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He has included Gentiles in his ministry. He's not burdened by trying to follow the man-made religious system that took the Mosaic Covenant and made it into an onerous burden of 613 man-made commandments created from the law of Moses that were to be obeyed. An onerous burden on the people. Put another way, John and Jesus are not singing their tune, and this generation is upset. This generation wants things their way, not God's way, and they are throwing a tantrum manifested by their lack of repentance and their accusations against John and Jesus. Now, as we've been studying, you may realize this is really the first indication we have of the rejection that Jesus and John experienced. Up to this point, apart from some of the religious leaders, Matthew has not really introduced us to strong opposition to Jesus' ministry. We know John is now in prison, but that opposition was from Herod. However, here he gives us insight into what else had been going on among the people. And we're going to see increasing hostility to the message of the gospel and to Jesus himself as Matthew continues to unfold the ministry and work of Christ leading up to the cross and his resurrection. Well, verses 18 and 19 make clear that analogy Jesus presents in verses 16 and 17. And Jesus provides a summary of this ministry of John the Baptist and then links it with his own ministry. He begins by saying, John did not come feasting, saying, eat, drink, and be merry. Explained another way, John did not come endorsing their sin, overlooking their need for repentance, saying, you know what, Galileans, everything's fine. Everything is as it should be. So let us eat, drink, and be merry. We are perfectly at peace with God the way we are. and this generation runs from the light like cockroaches when it's shone upon them. When their sin is exposed and their need is exposed, instead of responding in repentance, they run from the light. Responds by saying that John has a demon. I mean, that can be the only explanation for his serious and austere message of repentance. I mean, who else would live in the desert dressed in camel skin, eating locusts and wild honey? That was their explanation for why John did not join them in their senseless frivolities their way of life, their journey on the broad and easy path, eating and drinking their way to destruction. And yet, while that would have been enough to incur judgment, in the mercy and the grace of God, he provides the alternative. And yet, as we see, this really goes to demonstrate the hardness of their heart. Because he gives them every opportunity, every conceivable possible opportunity to repent, because now this generation was offered repentance from one who came who is gentle and lowly, who is a friend of sinners, not a sinner himself, but one who came to care for the lost wherever they were found. And rather than foregoing drink and food and living that ascetic lifestyle of John the Baptist, Jesus came and used meals as evangelistic opportunities, showing tax collectors and sinners that he was there to help them, to call them to repentance. Regarding the significance of a meal and the nature of the rejection, one commentator notes that in the culture of Jesus' day, to share a meal was to share a life, meaning that meals implied fellowship, acceptance, and identity between friends. And so they had bound up their social values in the sharing of meals. And so anyone who challenged that, anyone who came and acted contrary to what they expected, would have been judged to have acted dishonorably. A serious charge in cultures based on honor and shame. Transgression or violating these customs consistently would make a person an enemy of social stability. These accusations by John and Jesus' contemporaries, this generation, are not benign. They're not just made up, quick, off the cuff accusations. They're actually steeped in Old Testament thought. And I can only imagine that it was the religious leaders who began the murmurings of these accusations. You see, within the Old Testament, they allude to Old Testament standards that were worthy of capital punishment. Though rarely carried out in the current day. For John, the accusation alluded to demonic possession or a spirit of a magician and a false prophet. And these accusers were slandering John, implying that because he was with a demon, by extension... He must be a false prophet, which means he must be put to death. Now, they didn't say that outright. Instead, they just subtly and manipulatively started uttering the suggestions that he's a false prophet. He has a demon. On Jesus' part, by saying he was a glutton and a junkard, they alluded to the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21.20, which likewise incurs a capital offense. Rather than outright calling for their death, those opposed to the ministry of Jesus and John, when upset by them, were more subtly slandering them by introducing accusations which have as the only logical conclusion that, at least by Old Testament standards, they are worthy of death. This was a much more subtle and manipulative way to call for getting rid of the ministry of John and Jesus, which made them so uncomfortable. It was much more effective. Where persons might have shied away, at least those with some sensibilities left, to just calling for their deaths. Introducing these ideas and these thoughts begins to sow the seed that would lead to the crowds crying out, crucify him. Those who first introduce these slanderous accusations have deniability. They can say, we didn't say you should put him to death, but you know what, if that's the logical outcome, then so be it. And yet the implication is clearly there. But little do these children of Satan realized that they were playing into the plan of God before the foundation of the world, which was foretold when initiated in the Garden of Eden. Jesus' reference to himself here, and again as the Son of Man, introduces a sense of impending judgment as it alludes back to Matthew 8.20 and ultimately all the way back to Daniel 7.14 and the eschatological judgment scene that is set up in heaven that Daniel witnesses. And it really helps provide a segue into the prophetic judgment in verses 20 through 24. But before we jump to verses 20 through 24, we, we need to note that final clause of verse 19 where it says, Wisdom, here, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. What does this mean? Wisdom is a well-known theme or motif of Scripture, especially if you've studied or read through Proverbs. I know many of you have. Here, wisdom is the personification or the description of the ministry of both Jesus and John. One theologian has noted that John, or Jesus has said, in effect, all you do here is give orders and criticize. For you, the Baptist, is a madman because he fasts while you want to make merry. Me, you reproach because I eat with tax collectors while you insist on strictly separating from sinners. You hate the preaching of repentance. You hate the proclamation of the gospel. So you play your childish game with God's messengers while Rome burns. And yet, as another helpfully notes, despite the unrepentant refusal of this generation to acknowledge that God's true wisdom is found in the ministries of Jesus and John, the truth will come out. You cannot hide the truth no lie can overcome the truth. The works that Jesus and John have performed in their ministries, along with the lives of those who repent and believe, will vindicate the actions of God's true wisdom in and through John and Jesus. So despite the cries of this generation, despite the accusations of the world and the religious leaders, the ministry of Jesus and John is declared righteous. It is declared righteous. True, it is vindicated. The false accusations are laid at rest by their deeds, by their works, their actions. And really, this establishes or reestablishes a pattern we find throughout Jesus' teaching, continuing into the teaching of the apostles, that the spiritual health and nature of a person, as well as the soundness of their teaching, is validated and vindicated through their actions. You can jump ahead just one chapter to Matthew 12, beginning of verse 33, and read along. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. He's speaking here again through analogy, referring to persons. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure that what is, what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 3, here we see the repeated idea that works of a person validate and are an indication of the soundness of their message and their life. We see in James 3 beginning in verse 11, does a fountain send out from it the same, from the same opening, both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And then in James, go back to verse, chapter one, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of men does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. You'll find throughout Jesus' teaching, throughout the New Testament, this repeated theme that the deeds of a person, the words of a person, reflect the inward character and soundness of a person. These verses in this illustration reminds us that if people are going to reject the message of the gospel, they will find a way to do it. That's what 16 through 19 is highlighting. Whether they accuse you of being too legalistic or too irreligious, the problem is the human condition, which is Sin. Total depravity reigns in our day in the same way it did in Jesus' day. Churches that try to appeal to the unbeliever or to the fickle mood of our generation will never truly reach the lost. No amount of capitulation, no amount of agreement over social issues will truly reach those in desperate need of salvation. The only thing that will accomplish this salvation is the preaching of the gospel and repentance from sins. This preaching coupled with a life submitted in obedience to the Lord, demonstrating the gospel, is how the Lord has chosen to turn sinners from the broad way leading to destruction to the narrow path. As MacArthur has noted, the greatest evidence we will ever have for the transforming work of the gospel is the life of a transformed person. Notice that the message and the works are intimately connected here by Jesus. The wisdom and ministry of John and Jesus are proven true through their faithfulness and deeds. And this is why so much of the apostles' later teaching focuses upon living out the inward transformation that has taken place. Demonstrating one's love and gratefulness of the Son by obedience and good works. These good works, by the way, and, and David already alluded to this this morning as we were taking communion these works according to Ephesians 2 10 were prepared beforehand that we should perform them and do them these were prepared just as the promise and the hope of salvation the star in the sky all of this was part of God's eternal plan so were these works prepared before the foundation of the world that we should participate in them why not because God just wants us busy It's because this is the means and the way in which he desires to make his kingdom known and grow through the life of transformed persons living it out in obedience to him reflecting being his image bearers reflecting the glory of god as they shine and reflect the light of the father to a world that so desperately needs this hope a world in darkness blinded by its sin These works are given so that we might give proof to the transforming power of the gospel and the love of God. As noted earlier, both the term, both the use of this generation and son of man, they've oriented us to the fact that a pronouncement, pronouncement of judgment is coming. Jesus, having identified the wisdom of God and the message of repentance, being vindicated, justified, proven right through the lives and ministry of Jesus and John, In other words, saying these accusations against them, they carry no weight. Those are false accusations. Which interestingly, remember these accusations alluded to the death penalty. Do you know what the penalty is for a false witness in the Old Testament? Death. In essence, Jesus has said they have been vindicated, which means those who bore witness against them are now those who are worthy of death. So Jesus now goes on to utter condemnation upon specific cities of this generation who has partaken in this false accusation. Verse 20 provides a little parenthetical of Matthew's own commentary on what has been happening in Jesus' speech as Jesus continues his address to this generation. Jesus is here specifically denouncing those cities in which he has been ministering and where most of his miracles have been performed to date. And the denunciation and the judgment is because they have failed to repent. However, the severity of this judgment, judgment comes upon all who do not repent, but the severity of this judgment is because they were given such a great opportunity and evidence of the kingdom of God and yet failed to turn from their sin. This rejection of Jesus and John's deeds of wisdom now comes to roost in judgment. In verse 21, that term woe that you find there at the beginning, it's always used throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament of judgment oracles or speeches. And the New Testament is likewise used to introduce judgment. And here that judgment is first directed against Chorazin and Bethsaida, two cities and towns of Galilee. Chorazin was a medium-sized town noted for its wheat production. It was, it's identified today with modern Kirbet kerazah about two miles north of Capernaum, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida was on the northern tip of the lake. Sea of Galilee, just on the western side of the Jordan River, still considered part of Galilee, and it was the hometown of Simon and Andrew, as well as Philip, apostles, disciples of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as we've already seen and observed these many weeks, has performed many miracles throughout Galilee, many more than we even have recorded. In fact, John, at the end of his gospel, says many more things were done so that the world could not contain the things written so much was done. But just of those that we know about, Jesus has been going throughout Galilee, raising the dead, healing various sicknesses, walking on water, healing the blind, healing the lame, healing leopards, and casting out demons, just to name some of the things he's been doing. And yet, despite the plethora of miracles and wonders, there is no what? No repentance. There's an infatuation, there's an amazement, There's an interest, but looking as a whole, there is no repentance. There are individuals, there are some who have repented, but as a whole, there is no repentance from those who should know better. So Jesus thus compares these cities to the ancient Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon located in modern day Lebanon, a little further to the north and west. Tyre and Sidon were condemned in Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 26 through 28 for their luxurious living and their arrogance. Their downfall came as they were raided and sacked by Alexander the Great, approximately 330 BC. Despite however their destruction almost 350 years previously, the region still bore the name of those famous cities. In fact, we see Jesus going into that region in Mark 7. Jesus notes that these Gentiles, at the height of their arrogance and pride, these Gentiles would have repented at the preaching and demonstration of Jesus' ministry that those in Chorazin and Bethsaida were exposed to. And yet these Israelites, those steeped in the Old Testament prophecies, those who had an expectation of the Messiah, rather than repent... They respond in unbelief and hardness of heart so that as John says, he came to his own, but those who were his own would not receive him. No matter how they came, you send John with his asceticism, you send Jesus with his gentleness, and they will not respond. So Jesus' conclusion is that at the last judgment, God will demonstrate more tolerance towards those arrogant pagan cities than toward Galilee. Now while we won't go into great detail at this time, you can see clearly here the implication that even in in eternal punishment, there are going to be varying degrees of severity. It'll be horrible for all, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, but some will experience even greater levels of pain and suffering because of their unbelief and sin there will be varying degrees of torment in hell. And this is by no means the only passage that speaks to this. In fact, we'll encounter it again in Matthew 12 and as we get to the end of the book in Matthew 23. As Osborne notes, Galilee has received the greatest ministry humankind could ever know, would ever know. And so their judgment must be and would be correspondingly more severe. However, Jesus is, isn't done here. His hometown of Capernaum is now on the docket. It will not be spared a pronouncement of judgment either. As Jesus notes in chapter 13 of Matthew, a prophet is not without honor except in his, except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus uses judgment language that continues to hearken back to the Old Testament as his condemnation moves to Capernaum. This time, the allusions and the references, if you're familiar with Isaiah 14, some of the words and the phrases would immediately catch your ear. Because within Isaiah 14, it was the pride of Babylon and the king of Babylon, who rather than ascending to heaven were cast down, who was exalted in the heavens but brought low, cast down for its boasting, its pride and self-exaltation. Here, Capernaum, the leading city in the area, well situated economically and politically, has exalted itself. But Jesus condemns its pride, which has caused the persons to lose sight of eternity and has created within them this false sense of self importance and security. By comparing them to these cities, he's comparing them to the sin of these cities, to their pride and their arrogance. And what arrogance is it? It's arrogance in the face of God's judgment. I don't need God, I don't need to repent. And so they had this false sense of spiritual security. Pride, and specifically this type of pride, is particularly onerous to God. And God hates it so much, particularly because pride in oneself and failure to recognize his provisions, it makes man God. We put ourselves in the place of God, whereas God is the one who Scripture tells us over and over again, provides, cares, orchestrates, sovereignly designs things for our lives. We instead begin to think that we have control over those things, that we are the makers of our own fortune, of our own future. And so we begin to replace God, to diminish the importance of God till eventually he's entirely eclipsed by our own self-worth and self-importance and we've made ourselves an idol in place of God. This was the downfall of Babel. It was the arrogance that led to Nebuchadnezzar's seven years as a beast in the field. Misguided views of self and self-importance and a false sense of spiritual security will blind persons to their need of the gospel. It's one of the reasons that wealth and affluence, far from softening hearts, are often barriers to the gospel. It's one of the reasons that the quote-unquote American dream may do more to blind persons from the gospel than it does to open their hearts to the need of the gospel. I'm not saying we should encourage people to live in poverty. We should seek to love and alleviate the needs of those around us, but it cannot eclipse the preaching of the gospel. James, in fact, condemns James, in James 1, condemns the church for showing favoritism and partiality to wealthy persons, reminding them that it's these same persons who are persecuting you, It's really, it's a reminder that we should not sidestep the gospel or try to curt favor with wealthy persons or show favoritism. If anything, those who are wealthy and apparently self-sufficient need to be shaken from their stupor and reminded of their impending judgment, not handled with kit gloves because of their wealth and power. It's in large part what got John cast into prison. Now if you're a Jew living in Capernaum, Bethsaida, those are your hometowns. The language here is hard to hear. It's hard to even comprehend the the gravity of what Jesus is saying. How could judgment for Capernaum be more severe than wicked Sodom? I mean, come on, Jesus. You've been in Capernaum. You you've read you've read Genesis, right, Jesus? I mean, you understand how wicked they were. You know, we're not like them. How how can their punishment be less severe than ours? what is it that makes our punishment so severe? We're not like Sodom. In fact, from what we know of Capernaum, it was nothing like Sodom in terms of explicit wickedness, the practice of horrendous immorality. And yet, as we learn here, God's wrath and judgment is measured not by what offends our sensibilities, but by what most offends him. And what is that? We need only look back a few verses and to be reminded of what it was that made John so great. John's greatness that we looked at in the previous couple of weeks came from his nearness to Christ, from his embrace of Christ. And so, it is one's rejection of Christ, the Son of God, which has the opposite effect. The more determined the rejection, particularly when given more opportunity for repentance, the more severe the judgment. The more knowledge, the more opportunity one has to repent and believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the more weighty the judgment in eternity is for rejecting him. This would certainly apply to Jesus' generation, to the this generation in this passage. But what are the implications for us in our generation? but we still have the same propensities and same sin nature. As one commentator notes, our human nature corrupted by original sin inherited from Adam does not want to repent and we sinners do not naturally want the joy and celebrations of grace. We would rather rejoice on some other terms than the ones that Christ offers to us. We'd rather celebrate our own achievements, our own power, our own abilities. However, the rejection, particularly by those who have tasted the goodness of the Lord, results in severe punishment in the day of the Lord. Peter writes about that in 2 Peter 2, saying, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed down to them. If you're here this morning and you have heard the gospel once, twice, five times, 10 times, 100 times, maybe you've grown up in church, please understand, I plead with you, understand that to reject Jesus brings greater punishment upon you. The need for you this morning is to turn from your sin. To recognize that Jesus is the only hope, the only place you can turn, where you must cast yourself on him saying, Lord, I can't do this. Your wrath and your grace is so great, the punishment for sin is so severe, I can't do this on my own, the only hope I have is in Christ. And I plead with you to turn there this morning. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know what tomorrow holds. So what should our response as those who do know the Lord, who have cast our faith upon Christ, what should our response be to this sobering reality? Well, it's to look at our surrounding world. And as Jesus did at the end of chapter 9, to grieve over its darkness. To pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers while simultaneously being faithful to labor in the place where the Lord has sovereignly put us today. He has sovereignly put you in a place surrounded by friends, coworkers, family members, and that is your mission field. Embrace it. Make the most of it. This passage also reminds us that we need not worry and try to control the outcome. In fact, we can just go into it expecting to be rejected. The world rejected Christ. Why should we expect anything less? And yet that should not scare us away from our path and our work to continue proclaiming the gospel, to continue praying to the Lord of the harvest until the day that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Yet even that passage is sobering in its reality because while, yes, we long for that day, every knee is not bowing in loving submission. Every bee will bow. Many, many will be forced to bow before being cast into hell. So we've already observed this morning, churches and ministries that try to play to the itching ears of popular demands will never in the end truly reach the lost. As one commentator notes, God's messenger should never seek popularity and acceptance. We need the boldness of John and Jesus and must allow God to justify our ministry. We must refuse to play the numbers game of worldly popularity. Additionally, we're reminded this morning of the method that results in true and eternal change that builds the kingdom of God. There's a great temptation to try and fix people, right? I mean, we see those who we love, we don't want them to go to hell, but oftentimes we, it's almost like we have blinders and we forget what we're about and we try to fix the little sins in their life. it's often driven out of a good desire, a desire for them to not further offend a holy God. However, this fix rarely results in lovers of God. Rather, it more often results in hard-hearted Pharisees. It doesn't mean we encourage immorality or sin. Where possible, we should strive against it. But it must never eclipse our primary responsibility and focus, which is to preach the hope of the gospel and repentance. That must always be at the forefront. True and lasting change will come from transformed persons living transformed lives, preaching a transforming gospel, being lights in the midst of a world that is living in darkness, blinded by its sin. The Christmas season is a unique opportunity for us. It's a unique opportunity to share the gospel where it's almost as if persons are primed to receive it. There's something that happens in the Christmas season, at least in our Western culture, where people start to have a little more of an outward focus. It's a little less inward, still inward. It's a little less so. That God of self begins to just be a little bit lower. And it is a wonderful opportunity. It is a time that we must take advantage of to proclaim this hope of salvation, to let the light shine in. So our encouragement this morning is to go forth in boldness, proclaiming this hope, proclaiming the gospel, mirroring it in our lives and trusting the outcome to the Lord. As Spurgeon commented, and I'm not quoting verbatim, he said, I I can understand in the sovereignty of God persons not coming to salvation through my preaching and through my ministry. But I cannot, as a Christian, understand living at peace and content with the fact that no one is coming to salvation through my ministry, to be burdened with wanting to see persons turn from their sin, to, turn, to be snatched as it were from the fires of hell. Let us not waste a single opportunity, especially when the consequences are so great and the costs are so high for unbelief in our generation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sobering reminder this morning we have of the coming judgment. Lord, would it be a motivating factor in our lives as we seek to perform and practice the deeds that you've prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Help us to be faithful to do that, to live out to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to strangers, That transforming work of the gospel. May we continually in our lives and in our words point to Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're going to close by singing together.